Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX-75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. In this episode of Talking the Talk, we're going to be exploring the history of suspension systems. Hello, Mike. What have you got for us today? Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Um, Today, this is really the first of two very related episodes. So in this chat, we're going to speak about the history of suspension systems. And in the next episode, we're going to speak about the history of vehicle dynamics. But these two topics are hugely interlinked. So suspension systems are the physical components such as the dampers, the springs, the wishbones, the control arms. And vehicle dynamics is the set of subjective attributes that describe how these suspension components perform. And it's primarily grouped into two categories, so ride and handling. So ride is the ability for the suspension to isolate the occupants from the undulations and the impacts of the road. So, you know, in simple terms, how comfortable are you in the car? And handling fundamentally is the ability for the suspension to keep the tires in contact with the road and pointing in the correct direction so that the car responds accurately to the request of the driver. So the suspension system is doing, you know, it's handling both of those attributes at the same time. But of course, different cars have different requirements. So one um, funny little example is, the design specification target for the Citroen 2 CV was that it could drive across a plowed field without breaking eggs in a basket. I, I heard that, though. Is that really true, though? Could you drive across a plowed field and not, well, why would you want to in the first place? But could you actually do it? Yeah, it, it was actually specification. And not only was it the specification, Renault copied the specification for the Renault 4. So the Renault 4 came out a few years later and was, uh, almost 10 years later, was Renault's answer to the 2CV. And when Renault launched the car, they had this moving road with lots of bumps on it and they had a a Renault 4 sitting stationary on it and and um, with a basket of eggs in the car and the suspension system moving up and down. So that's, you know, that... I stand corrected. Go on ahead. So that gives you an idea of sort of, you know, you know, that's obviously then very different to what would be asked of the suspension system of a Ferrari or Lamborghini, right? So so it's a very different design set of design targets. Now, the geometry and the motion of each of the elements of the suspension system, that's what defines the vehicle dynamics. But in parallel, then, the specification target for the dynamics determines the type and the geometry and the operation envelope of the suspension. So they're they're hugely interlinked. Now, today, we're just going to focus on the components themselves, the suspension components. So, good place to start then as let's describe what the suspension is actually doing, what it's having to cope with. Okay. So, if we think of an individual wheel. So, as an individual wheel goes over a bump in the road, there's a number of parallel actions happening. So, as the wheel goes over the bump, it rises relative to the body of the car. 
Now it's connected to the car via a spring. So that spring must compress at a rate which allows the wheel to rise up, but it must do without transferring that force, the force of the bump into the vehicle body. So, you know, you don't want to get that effect, right? And at the same time, as the wheel passes the bump, the spring must be able to force the wheel back down so the tire maintains grip of the road. So that's for a single bump. And now in a single bump, the damper is also in operation. So the, the, the job of the damper is to allow the spring to compress and to extend, but then to limit the spring motion afterwards so you don't get this continual bouncing effect. And of course, all of this happened very rapidly. I've, you know, I've described it quite slowly, but it's happening very rapidly and it's happening repeatedly and it's happening at different rates, rates. So, you know, not all bumps are the same. And of course, all four wheels are operating simultaneously, but dealing with different inputs. So the chassis and the suspension system must be able to operate as a whole without creating unwanted reactions, you know, like jolts or noises, and in a manner that the driver can control the car. So the geometry of the suspension controls the amount and the trajectory of the suspension movement within the car. Wow, there's a hell of a lot of things going on there. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about trajectory. What, what, what do you mean by that term? Yeah, so this is, this is a key point, right? So the wheel is moving relative to the car, but it's not just rising and falling in a straight line. The wheel and the upright that it's connected to, they're connected to the vehicle chassis through various sort of beams or arms, which are jointed and hinged. And if you imagine that the wheel was connected by a single arm to the vehicle, it would pivot in an arc, you know, to be like a pendulum pivoting in an arc. And that would cause the wheel to, to lean in or out. Now, the leaning motion, so the, so the leaning motion is called the camber change of the wheel. And camber is a good thing when it's controlled because allowing the wheel to lean allows the tire contact patch to maintain adhesion with the road surface. Now, suspension systems don't just have a single arm. They've got multiple arms. And those multiple arms are placed and positioned and have a geometry that um, is designed in order to control the wheel position and the orientation of the wheel. Right. So I'm thinking back, I remember seeing years ago, uh, Fiat 500, and the wheels were, there was no one in it. So the wheels were at a very bizarre camber. Yeah, a positive camber. It's actually, it's a very poor camber because what happens in a positive camber is as the car corners, the car effectively leans off the tire. So you get less grip in the corner when you actually need more grip. Okay. So which vehicle had the very first suspension? Well, this has got to be one of the oldest technologies. So the Egyptian chariots in the 1300s, they had very complicated uh, wooden elements that were designed to act as springs and dampers. Fascinating, really fascinating, but probably a little bit of a, out of out of our remit, I'd say today, today Kevin. But I did ask you. That's fair enough. <laughs> so let's take us back to where we are. Let's start with springs. Okay, so three main types of springs have been used in in cars. So coil springs, most people would think of as a spring, right? So the circular spring. Leaf springs are stacked steel flat beam plates that flex in the middle. And then torsion bar springs, it's where the spring resistance is provided by twisting a material so that so that the, the torsion in the material provides a springing method. Well, so Bobby, sorry to cut across you. That's the actual metal itself providing the resistance and the twist. Yeah, exactly. So if so the if, so torsion. Bar suspension. It was actually invented by Porsche in 1931, and it was the Citroen 
uh, traction event. That was the first production car to use it. So in those, um, what you get is there's a flat beam that goes across the car and the wheels are connected to each end of it. And as the suspension arms go up and down, they twist that flat beam and the twisting of the flat beam is actually the spring, um, gives the springing resistance. So it was it was widely used, particularly in, in European cars in the 50s. You know, lots of well-known examples, you know, the, the Volkswagen Beetle, the Jaguar E-Type. In fact, nearly all of the British Motor Corporation cars in the in the 50s and 60s had it. So like the, the likes of the Morris Minor. Hmm. So that's a that's a torsion beam. Um, coil springs and leaf springs, they were well established actually before cars were invented. So they were already on horse-drawn carriages. The coil spring has many advantages. Um, so it's it's much easier to control than a leaf spring. But the leaf spring does have one natural was one um advantage, which is there's a natural level of damping because the leaf spring is a you know it's stacked steel plates that that flex. And because you've got these plates flexing on top of one another, there's there's friction between them. And that friction provides a natural damping in there. Coil springs don't have that. So that's good in terms of performance, but it means that we need a separate damper, a separate component to act as a damping mechanism to oh, reduce. You're yeah. all over the place. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's the reason that actually leaf springs were chosen in the earliest cars. So coil springs were in existence, but because of that damping requirement, that's why leaf springs were in the earliest cars. Now, the first car with a coil spring on the front was in 1906. It was a, an American car called a brush runabout. And it was, but it was really um, General Motors that adopted the widespread use of front coil springs in 1934 on the Oldsmobile 8. And then General Motors again were the first to introduce rear coil springs in 1938 on the Buick Series 40. Right. So I remember from our, our previous cooling episode, I remember that the Buick Series 40 was the first with a radiator pressure cap. That's right. So yeah, that's right. Why were coil springs used in the front before the rear? Well, so the reason it happened on the front first um, before the rear is because the cars, all those cars used a rear wheel drive format and they used a solid axle or what's called a live axle. So that was the main form of drive axle in rear wheel drive cars for most of the 20th century. The leaf spring, apart from the springing, it was also used to locate the axle. So the axle is a large, heavy component and the leaf spring was actually able to position it in the car. The coil spring couldn't do that because the coil spring has much many more degrees of freedom. There's too much compliance in the coil spring. So to allow the introduction of coil springs on the rear axle, General Motors developed a whole system of stabilizers and anti-roll bars, and they are all designed to control the movement of the, of the wheels and the axle, and that's how they could introduce it on the rear axle. Right. So just to clarify one point, then an anti-roll bar does basically what it says. It stops... Yep. So anti-roll bar, um, as you go through a corner, you know, the, the body of the car leans to the, the outside of the corner. Mm. What an anti-roll bar does very simplistically is it attaches the wheel or the suspension on the left-hand side to the suspension on the right-hand side. And as the car goes through the corner, the, the fact that it's connected on both sides, that resists the rolling motion for the car. So hence it's an anti-roll bar or a sway bar, as they call it in, in sure. the US. Heard that as well. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Now, I know in the 1930s, General Motors had a lot of suspension firsts. Yeah, so we talked about uh, first axle, or sorry, first coil axle, first coil springs on the front axle, first coil springs on the rear axle. 
the reason for this is actually in the 1930s, they were carrying out groundbreaking work on vehicle dynamics. And it was all due to the testing methodology, which was really pioneering by a Welshman called Mars Ollie. Now, Ollie and his team developed most of the fundamental concepts that govern vehicle handling today. It was absolutely pioneering. And, and actually, we'll, you know, we'll talk a lot more about him and about what they developed in, in the next episode. But one of the components that he developed or his team developed as, as a result of their work on vehicle dynamics is what's called the short long arm arrangement. So the uprights are the components that the wheels are actually attached to. And these are supported at the top and at the bottom by control arms, which are connected back to the chassis. Now, Ollie discovered that if the top arm is short and the bottom arm is long, that camber change we talk about, that could be very well maintained as the wheel rises and falls, and it gives significantly better road holding. And every single car today will have some variation of that long, of that short, long arm suspension arrangement. That's fascinating. So if they had good road holding not like the Corver we spoke about in the safety statement. They had good yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the the, the poor Corvair. Yeah, so the, the you know we talked about in the in the in the safety episode the the Corvair had what's called a swing axle. So this actually it's the system that's most similar to you know a moment ago I talked about if you had a single arm it would it would swing like a pendulum. So yes. a swing axle is the closest to that system. So as the wheel rises and falls, the wheel leans in and out. The roll center, then it's it's a virtual point that the car rolls around when it leans through the corner and it's positioned. It's determined by the suspension geometry. Now, on most cars, as we talked about a moment ago with the anti-roll bar, on most cars, the, the center of gravity is higher than the roll center. So what that means that as the car corners, the body leans down towards the ground. In cars with a swing axle, the roll center is higher than the center of gravity. And it causes the car, it's a weird feeling. It actually causes the car, the outside of the car to lift up as you go around a corner. Now, you have this lifting up effect, plus the fact that the wheels are mounted on a, directly on an axle, which causes them to lean down in under the car, plus the fact that the Corvair was a rear engine car, so a lot of mass at the back. And you put all of those things together and the Corvair, you know, had a tendency to have rapid and unexpected oversteer, which was, you know, to dangerous levels. But, yeah, rapid and unexpected oversteering not be something you ever want to consider when buying a car. No, absolutely not. But, you know, the, the like the, the Corvair had a kind of a particular set of problems altogether. But, you know, swing axles were used quite a bit in the 50s, right? So actually the very first car, Kevin, with the, with the swing axle is our, our old friend, the, the 1921 Rumpler Trumpfenwagen yeah. from, our, from our very first episode. Yeah. Um, now that was a, you know, you'll remember that was a very low volume car, but the, the 1931 Mercedes-Benz 170, that was the first volume car fitted with swing axle. And like I said, it was moved, you know, used on many cars in the 50s. So the, the Beetle that had a swing axle, the 300 SL, the Gullwing that had a, a, an axle. We talked about the Gullwing in, um, in the chassis, uh, in the body systems um, conversation. The Triumph Hurl and the Spitfire in Britain, the Renault Dauphine, they all had swing axles. And in fact, Mercedes retained the swing axle right up until 72 on the 280 and the 300 SEL. And then because these cars, they were designed with, with um, low roll centers and they were fitted with an extra lateral coil spring. So another spring going across the car. And then they also had a stabilizer bar called a Z bar to stop that, that body lifting. Funny enough, that Z bar 
it's a it's a an anti-roll bar that does the opposite effect. So in a in um in an anti-roll bar in most cars, the anti-roll bar stops the car from lifting. In a car with a swing axle, a swing axle, it promotes lifting to try to compensate. So yeah. Balance it out. Yeah. So with all of that going on, what are the advantages of a swing axle? The main advantage of the swing axle is it removes the need for that, that heavy, solid axle. So we talked a moment to go about the live axle. They were very heavy components. So the swing axle allowed the components, the, the engineer, the component engineers to remove that solid axle. So the differential could be now be mounted directly to the chassis rather than supported, supported by the suspension. And that allowed for lighter suspension systems. And it also it reduced the amount of wasted package space, because as you imagine, as the axle is moving up and down, you need to actually allow space under the car for that to happen. So, um, so it reduced all of that wasted package space as well. All right. So independent rear suspension is better than solid axle. In general, it is because you can control the wheels independently. Yeah. So um, in a live axle, the you know the left hand wheel is connected to the right hand wheel. So anything that happens on the left hand wheel, the right hand wheel actually experiences some of it. Now live axles are you know they're still used in in heavy vehicles and and in off road vehicles you know because they're 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 strong they're robust they're cheaper to maintain and and actually that that kind of that movement uh, that you know that's translated across the, the the vehicle is not as critical on a on a on a heavy um, heavy vehicle so. Generally, independent rear suspension is a much better performing suspension system than a live axle. Having said that, when the live axle is well designed and when it's well controlled, it can be very effective. Right. So if you think of the Ford Escort, so particularly the Mark II Escort, it's been a mainstay of rallying for 50 years, particularly tarmac rallying. You know, in fact, it won the world championship in 79. And in the US, you know, the muscle cars of the 60s and 70s, like the, the likes of the Chevrolet Camaro, they all had live axles. Yeah, and we're famous for having live axles. Absolutely. Yeah. So what other common suspension systems were in place then? Okay, so next thing we can talk about are the trailing arm and the semi-trailing arm. So again, very extensively used, still used today, in fact, predominantly on the rear axle. So both of these used a, a jointed beam arm, which is it's mounted to the car ahead of the wheel. And then sort of, you know, from the side view, if you were to look in at, at it, as that arm passes over a bump, the arm pivots as the wheel rises and falls. So the, the wheel is following it. So hence that term trailing. Yeah. So the trailing arm, a trailing arm pivots longitudinally in line with the car. A semi-trailing arm, then it's a, it's a variation on that. So it still is has that trailing effect, but it uses a, a triangular arm with two pivot points, um, and they're they're not falling directly in line with the car. They're sort of at an angle to the center of the car. Both systems are very effective at locating the wheel movement, and they can be arranged so that they you know they limit the amount of package space, which is which is important in the rear. And then usefully they can be used with independent suspension or with live axle, or with swinging axle, or with torsion beam suspensions. So, you know, they're, they're very, um, they're very versatile. Very, very uh, uh, adaptable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The main disadvantage is that the, the camber change cannot be controlled or, or, or directed very easily. 
Um, first car with a with a rear trailing arm was in 1922. It was a, a Lancia um, Aurelia, but it's still still quite common today for cars, particularly small cars, to have a McPherson strut front suspension and a torsion beam semi trailing arm suspension at the rear. So two brand new terms that you've introduced: McPherson strut and torsion beam. Right. So if we stay at the rear, the torsion beam. It's it's an op- open section steel beam that connects across the car between the trailing arms. So as the trailing arms move relative to each other, as the, the wheels go up and down, that torsion beam is twisted. So that twisting mo- motion provides a resistance to the trailing arm, and it acts to stop the vehicle rolling through the corners. Um, so it's you know it's a it's it's a very similar principle to the torsion bar suspension we talked about a, a moment ago on on the the Volkswagen Beetle. Um, each wheel still has a has a damper and still has a coil spring, but in some lighter cars, actually the torsion beam can replace that coil spring entirely. And the first car to use that can that only work on a lighter car though? Uh, it. it you can take away the coil spring on a lighter car because actually there isn't that much mass. So you can just rely on that twist in, in the beam. Heavier cars tend to need extra support. So you still need that coil spring retained. Yeah. If there's more mass. Yeah. Got you. Sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. And um, so that was first used on the Audi 80, 19, oh, sorry, the Audi 50 in 1974, or, you know, a car that is much more commonly known as the Volkswagen Polo. Yeah. And the arrangement it was common right up until the 1990s when multi-link suspension started to be started to uh, replace it. Okay, then. So that takes us to what then about the McPherson strut? Strut is that the right way to pronounce it? McPherson. McPherson, actually, yeah. Uh, McPherson strut. So I mentioned already that the wheel upright is connected at the top and at the bottom by the control arms, and you can have that short arm on the top, long arm on the bottom. So the McPherson strut removes the top arm entirely. And it connects the upright directly to the car, to the body of the car through the damper. So this idea was first trialed in 1946 by Chevrolet on a prototype called the Cadet. And it was invented by their chief engineer, a guy called Earl McPherson. But the project was cancelled, so Chevrolet never used it. And in fact, he was so put out by the project being cancelled that he moved, he jumped ship and he moved forward in the US. And in 1954, the console from Ford of Britain, that was the first car in production to use a, a McPherson strut. Yeah. Now, the strut gives it, you know, significant manufacturing advantages. So because that top control arm is removed, the strut allows, it's more, there's more package space in the front engine bay because you don't have that horizontal arm sticking into the engine bay. It can be used on the front wheels because the damper acts as the rotational axis for the front wheels to steer around. Mm-hmm. And it also, it removes, well, it removes some of the, the camber control elements, but it's offset by its manufacturing advantages. So in effect, it's still a version of that long, that short arm, long arm suspension setup. And it's today, you know, it's completely ubiquitous on front suspension of modern cars, um, f- particularly for smaller cars. And then multi-link and double wishbone is also used, but much far less commonly on the uh, on the front suspension. Right. So two more new terms: <laughs> link and double wishbone. Let's go with double wishbone first. Okay. So earlier on, we talked about the upright being connected to multiple arms. Yeah. So these control the wheel position and the trajectory of the wheel. So they do that by connecting the wheel to the car at multiple locations. So in effect, 
the more locations the wheel can be connected to, the greater level of control. So a double wishbone, it's a, it's a very simple and it's a very effective concept for how you can do this. So the upright is connected at the top and at the bottom to two triangular elements. The upright is connected at one point on the, on the triangle and the other two points in the triangle are attached directly to the vehicle chassis. The reason they're called wishbones is they look a little bit like a chicken wishbone, right? Or, you know. Mm-hmm. So the wheel is connected because you've got the two inner points on the wishbone at the top and at the bottom, the wheel is connected to the car at four locations. And that gives a very high degree of, of control of the wheel. And it's it's easily adjustable for um, for setting up. And it can be designed so that the wheel orientation can be modified as the wheel rises and falls. So you get a lot of dynamic control as well. Right. First car to use it was the 1934 Citroen Traction Avant. We've come across that car so often with so many firsts. Um, double wishbone, it's it still used extensively in motorsport and indeed in, in high performance cars or sports cars. You know, some of the best handling cars ever, the likes of the Mazda MX-5, that has double wishbone suspension all around. And would it be somewhat still popular because it's adjustable? Is that not just its handling characteristics, but the fact you can adjust it? Yeah, exactly. So you can, could, you can adjust it for setting up, which means in motorsport, you can set up the car for different tracks. So yeah. it makes a, that adjustability is very important to the engineer in motorsport. Okay. So take us through Multilink. What's Multilink? Okay. So the Multilink suspension basically takes that concept of the double wishbone and it just takes it a step further. Yeah. So instead of triangular elements, the wheel is located using multiple individual control arms. And each one of those you know, acts in a different plane and it acts in a different arc of operation. And the combination of all of these then can give very accurate control of the wheel through all of its range of motions. Mm. The first car to use it was in 1970. And it, sorry, the first production car, I should say. And it was the very low volume Mercedes-Benz C111 sports car. I think there was only about 16 of those built, actually. Mm. But it was then, it was 12 years later, 1982, Mercedes then used it on the 190. And that's the first volume production car. So it's a it's a complex set of geometric and dynamic articulation. And it's only really with the, the advent of sort of computer-aided design that it started to become extensively used. And really Multilink is, you know, it's used in some format on most cars today. Right. And can I just explore one little thing there? You talked there about giving um, combination, give accurate control of the wheel, but you're talking about also having a lot of different arms, a lot of different, is that, is that something that's con- a lot of components? Yeah, so there's lots of individual components. If you think of the the double wishbone, I'd say that you know it looks a little bit like a wishbone in a you know like a chicken wishbone, right? Yeah. So it's a it's a triangular element. If you break up the, the 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 sides of that triangle and you make them individual arms, you can then put them in different places. You can you can separate their location, and that's what I mean. You've got multiple arms coming into to yeah. to to meet the the upright. Okay. Excellent, Mike. Thank you so much for today. We've now explored the history of suspension systems. And up to now, I just thought wheels just went around. Now I know they go in every direction. So thank you very much, everyone. Uh, Please join us for episode 12. And we're going to explore the history of vehicle dynamics. See you then. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane. And you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. 
We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now. Thank you.